Hi, this is Sharice Kenyon, and you're listening to the Beauty Me podcast, all about beauty beyond the BS. This episode is going to be a timeline of the life, impact, and death of Doniella Luna, the first black supermodel who I always think of as the forgotten supermodel. We'll be touching on Doniella's life growing up in an abusive household, becoming a model in a time when racism was alive and well within the fashion industry and 1960s America as a whole. And we'll be looking at how her rise to the top led to an inevitable drug addiction and a lonely death at the age of 33. If you've been following my TikToks, you'll know that I've been talking a lot about the concept of the supermodel lately. In my recent videos, I've attributed the phrase to being a 90s phenomenon, and I've tried to break down what makes a supermodel. During all of that thinking, I've realized that the supermodel goes far beyond the 90s. And the thinking that I've come up with is something that I've tried to apply to perhaps trying to work out who could be the next supermodel. After going through hundreds of comments on various videos, you can check them out at Sharice Kenyon on TikTok. There's one key factor that I'm claiming as a way to kind of unite every supermodel, whether she's from the 90s or working today. I believe that key uniting factor is this essence of a supernatural beauty. Maybe back in the 90s, the supermodel phrase really applied to many more women. I feel that these days it's very few and far between because I'm talking about an unnatural beauty almost, otherworldly really. And otherworldly is probably a phrase you're going to hear a lot of in this episode. For me, it's the kind of beauty that is not often seen. It's not the Instagram face. It's not a filtered face. It's a face that's set apart by a unique combination. Perhaps that person has a high forehead and a gappy tooth smile. Perhaps there's razor sharp cheekbones combined with a heart shaped face. There's no exact recipe and I think that's why you can't predict things. If I were to give you examples of this otherworldly supernatural beauty, I would look at people like Penelope Tree from the 60s, Angelica Houston and Lauren Hutton from the 70s, Naomi Campbell, Amber Valletta, Linda Evangelista from the 90s, and Bella Hadid and Adut Aketch from today. Obviously, there are many more names in all of those decades, but there's something that sets these models apart when it comes to their looks. Don't get me wrong, I definitely think... Any models coming up to the 90s, there was an added dose of mystery. They were untouchable. We only would see them on runways and magazine covers. But today, with the advent of social media, we're seeing the likes of models such as Bella Hadid really utilizing it as a tool to share more by showing everything from what they eat to how they eat to how they dress and shop. They are securing themselves an audience potentially of millions, in the hopes of one day selling that audience their brand, whether that's alcohol, whether it's clothing, they're looking to be the names of the future. But even with social media, that's not a guaranteed thing because the models of today share so much. I do think you kind of have to wonder, will they still hold any allure for us in the future? Will there be anything left for us to be curious about? And it's curiosity that has led me back to doing an episode on Daniela Luna. In my most recent newsletter, I wrote about how I've gone back and forth about doing this episode. It's just been really tough and it's been 
labor intensive to say the least. But for me, before Naomi Campbell, before Cindy Crawford, before Christy Turlington, before anyone, there was Doniella. And for me, it's still Doniella. So I have to make, I, I just realized I have to make this episode happen. I believe that she has made the biggest impact on the fashion world, the modeling world. But yet we seem to know the least about her. Speaking of otherworldly looks, I'll just try and give you a brief summary of Doniella's looks. I'll definitely be sharing how she looks on lots of Instagram stories over at Beauty Me Podcast. I'll save it as a highlight, so there'll be a Doniella Luna highlight. You can check out the latest newsletter at beautymenotes.substat.com to see more. And I will be creating a few TikToks because Doniella just demands to be looked at. So when it comes to describing her, I would say very large eyes, described as almond shaped, just very big eyes, very full lips, combined with an oval shaped face that actually meant that she was often described as owl-like. She kind of peers at you um, through every image. She's very commanding in every image that I've seen of her, whether it's in vogue or whether it's just a candid captured backstage at a concert. So as with all things, we have to start at the beginning. And as I mentioned, it's been tough because there's so little information on Daniela out there, or rather there's lots of it, but it's all kind of been recycled from perhaps the same two articles. There's some really, really, really bad YouTube content on Daniela. I appreciate the effort, but you know, when people have that AI kind of voice, so there's no intonation, there's no depth to their voice. It's literally like a robot reading a script. And it's such a shame because there is so much in Doniella's story. When it comes to most of the actual correct historical information in this episode, I can pretty much guarantee my one solid source has to be that of the work of author Ben Aragondadi. Back in 2012, he wrote an article for the fashion section of the English newspaper, The Telegraph. You can still find it and I'll definitely share it in the show notes. And he also wrote an ebook on Doniella, which I think came out the same year. I relied heavily on Ben's work and I'm, I will be letting you know that all throughout this episode. I couldn't have done Doniella justice without Ben's work because everybody else just seems to be misinterpreting his work and kind of like just making things up. But let's see where we go. Let's see where we end up with the story of Daniela's life. One thing we know is that she was not born with that name. We know she was born in Detroit as Peggy Ann Freeman in 1945 to working class parents Nathaniel and Peggy and she had two sisters Lillian and Josephine. Some articles say Doniella was five foot eleven, six foot, six foot two. There's lots of speculation on how much she weighed, but everyone agrees Doniella had a very slender figure. And I actually love how Ben Aragondade describes her in his book, which is called Beauty's Enigma: The Story of Doniella Luna, the First Black Supermodel. He describes her as having legs like a Giacometti sculpture. And I don't know about you, but I studied fine art, so I'm really familiar with those sculptures. Every sculpture was very long and almost spider-like legs and arms, very slim and very angular. 
And Ben also points out that Doniella had an owl-like quality too. Ben is one of the few people to actually nail down Doniella's racial background. And that's something that comes up a lot. He says her mother was African-American and European, while her father was African-American and South American Indian, Quechuan. From an early age, Peggy Ann stood out for her looks. Her sister Lillian Washington, who seems to be the sister who's most often quoted, she said that Doniella lived in a dream world. She was all about fantasy. Basically, also making things up and telling lies about her life. Lillian calls her weird. Doniella also says in later articles she always knew she was strange. And these fantasies that she created through her childhood actually carried on into adulthood. Once she told a boyfriend that her parents had been killed in a car accident and that she was adopted. And obviously that's a pretty big lie and the kind of lie you might be looking over your shoulder to see if, you know, karma catches up with you. But it's also a sign that Doniella was constantly searching for an escape. This lack of honesty, shall we say, also showed up when it came to Doniella's race. She would often deny that her mother was black she would deny that her birth certificate said she was black. She would say her mother was Mexican. And she would say that she herself was a, a huge mix of all these different races. Some say the fact that she actually gave herself the surname of Luna was a further hint of how she yearned to be someone or somewhere else. Luna kind of referring to the moon. And the fact that as a young girl, she decided to change her own name. To me, it's just a really a sign of almost urgency of desperation of just wanting to feel that you are special and you're someone different. I think that deep down Doniella wanted to be discovered and celebrated and treated as special and that even showed up later on in her career she went into film. She always said she wanted to be an actress and modeling was never part of the plan but I also think that this desire to be discovered and celebrated came from the fact of where she was growing up. It's the 1940s and 50s and America was not a place that valued black people, let alone a young black woman. Her home background likely also affected this desire to escape. There are numerous mentions of her father's alcoholism and how it affected the family unit. He often lived apart from the family and apparently they moved as much as six times in six years. Her sister Lillian says that their mother was also abusive, particularly towards the elder half-sister Josephine. Despite the often tumultuous home environment, apparently they did live pretty well. They had a pretty stable financial background. And many accounts that I've read paint an almost romantic picture of how they grew up together. Doniella also went to the same high school as Diana Ross, and it was during this time that she changed her name from Peggy Ann to Doniella. In Ben Aragondade's book, he says that this marks the beginning, this name change marks the beginning of a career-long experiment in self-invention. It's been said that along with her new persona to escape this chaotic home life, Doniella even changed how she spoke. She gave herself an accent and her sister said that when she spoke, it was almost as if she was singing which again, I think makes sense when you take her acting career into consideration. 
She studied theatre from an early age, it, so it seems as if she was born to act and put on voices and airs, and that really signals to me the whole fantasy aspect of her life as well. Later on in life, this desire to constantly change appearance definitely would have helped her as a model. She would have easily been seen as more versatile, I think, by anyone hiring her. She went from being a so-called tasteless schoolgirl to someone who knew how to add in hair pieces. She would often wear blonde wigs. She would add long curly eyelashes, wearing white eyeshadow on her, on her already large eyelids, lots of thick black eyeliner drawn widely around each eye. She wanted to make even more of her big eyes. She also was one of the first models to wear contact lenses in blue, purple, green, orange, yellow. And throughout her career, even though eventually the biggest names in fashion wanted to dress her, she often preferred to design her own looks, often featuring knee-high boots, worn with robes and trains and veils, very theatrical, and always accessorized with stacks of bangles and bracelets. I'll definitely share images of Daniela's dress sense over at Beauty Me Podcast on Instagram and TikTok because I absolutely love her style. For me, it's definitely luxurious hippie vibes, which I love. I wanted to share this paragraph from Ben's book because for me, it sums up how, despite Daniela's criticisms for changing how she looks and kind of trying to fit some other kind of mold, perhaps to do with her race, she wasn't the only person that was trying to pass as being somebody else in the 40s and 50s. Ben writes... At that time, Americans of all ethnicities and religious denominations were giving themselves makeovers in order to better assimilate into modern society. The Chinese, the Jews, the Irish, the African Americans and other members of the immigrant population were all busy changing their hair, their clothes, the way they spoke, their surnames, the place they came from and the nationality of their parents in order to become fully-fledged Americans. Everywhere, people were creating new identities for themselves like actors in their own movie of life. So I hope you understand why I wanted to share that. For me, that is Doniella. I think we even talk about it now on TikTok, you know, playing the main character in the film of your life. I think that's what Doniella wanted to do. And for me, that paragraph really makes me think about how people really bought into the concept of the American dream. That was a term that was coined in the 1930s and apparently meant that everybody deserved a better way of life and that America held that promise. I also wanted to share that paragraph because I know how weird, ignorant, arrogant and deluded Doniella may sound when I share some of her own words on race in particular later on. But I really do not think she was the only one hoping to escape the life she had also, it makes me think, you know, I mentioned Bella Hadid in social media earlier. If Doniella had been born in 2000 instead of 1945, would she be using social media right now to escape her home life and catapult herself to fame? Would she be sharing recipes? Would she be showing us how she makes her clothes and how she accessorizes her looks? If she was on social media, would she be just like the Kardashians for us? As with many of the big supermodels, there's always a moment where they are discovered and the facts aren't always easy to find. 
Although most articles say that Doniella was just 14 years old when she was spotted by a New York-based British photographer, David McCabe, her daughter, Dream Casaniga, wrote in an article for Vogue in 2019 that her mother was discovered in 1963, aged 18. And that is a big difference. I mentioned the not very good YouTube content on Daniela. And nobody has said that she was discovered at 18. It's all 14. It's just like this regurgitated content. So I was so pleased to find this article written by Daniela's own daughter to clarify. Either way, McCabe was in Detroit on a photo assignment for Ford and he was stunned by Daniela's looks. He describes her as a beautiful girl wearing a Catholic schoolgirl's plaid skirt. He approaches her and he asks her if she's a model. Of course, she said no, and he told her that if she was ever in New York and wanted to try modeling, she should contact him. A year passed, and although she was keen to move to New York, at the time, apparently being a model was similar to being a prostitute, or what today we would call a sex worker. So I I just think it was a distasteful career for any young woman to go into, and probably as a black woman, it was just not the vibe that her mum wanted her to get into. Her mum wanted her to be a teacher or a nurse. But as a compromise, she said that Doniella could move to New Jersey to live with an aunt who would keep an eye on her as she tried to make a name for herself in New York. The year was 1964. Not really an ideal time for a black woman to even think about modelling as a career. And as I mentioned, Doniella really was all about acting. But obviously this opportunity came up and she could not say no. But as Ben Aragondade says in his book, 1964 was a pivotal time in American history. And it was a time when the fashion industry itself operated its own kind of apartheid. In fact, Hearst, the publishers of Harper's Bazaar, and all other mainstream fashion magazines at the time had a policy, an openly racist policy of not hiring blacks as models or company employees. If you were a black person applying for a job at Hearst in the 1960s, you would be told we do not employ African-Americans, point blank, that's it. So that was the world that young Doniola was entering when the photographer McCabe shot her first modeling assignment. That was a photo shoot for Mademoiselle magazine alongside film director Woody Allen, who we're not going to discuss here. Soon after... She was introduced to the Harper's Bazaar editor-in-chief, Nancy White, who was known as a really influential editor at the time because she didn't seem to shy away from important events and culture. On meeting the team at Harper's, Doniola remembers that she was called an extraordinary apparition. It was those looks that convinced editor Nancy White to scrap the proposed cover that they'd already started working on for the January 1965 issue. But while Nancy was known for, you know, being ahead of the game as a white woman in fashion, she still decided to err on the side of caution when it came to showing Doniella on the cover. She went with a sketch of Doniella rather than a photograph. The reason for that caution was, of course, the hugely ugly issue of racism in America. Using a sketch of Doniella meant that Harper's could keep her race ambiguous for a little bit longer and keep advertising cash coming in. 
It was also quite a shrewd decision to put Daniela on the January cover because that's the issue when you work in publishing. The January issue tends to be the one that has the least amount of advertising. Therefore, by putting a sketch of a black woman on a magazine in January, it probably isn't going to hurt the advertiser's feelings too much. It was a far less risky proposition than, say, if Nancy White had decided to put Daniela on the September issue traditionally the fattest issue of any magazine any fashion magazine every year it's usually easily 40 percent ads and it's a huge issue there's no way they were going to put Daniela on that cover so in some respects while Nancy was groundbreaking in her decision as putting Daniela on the cover nobody really knew it was a black woman's image on the cover so that meant it wasn't groundbreaking for the black community they did not have that chance to see somebody that looked remotely like them on the cover. They didn't get to see it. Even the people that worked in fashion didn't really get to see this image. Ben Aragondade rightly points out in his book that this could have been a huge moment for black people to see someone who looked like them being promoted within mainstream fashion. But a bigger story came up. Once again, it was Nancy White who gave Daniela her next big story. She actually signed Daniela to a year's exclusive contract with fashion photographer Richard Avedon and she gave her a six-page feature in the April 1965 issue of Harper's. In that feature, Daniela is wearing looks from Paco Rabanne and James Galanos and the accompanying caption read, as worn by Daniela Luna with all the grace and strength of a Maasai warrior. Those words are not surprising to me in their tone. We still have issues today around the language that is used to describe black women. But I'm actually surprised that a newspaper, the Herald Tribune, pointed out how this caption was problematic and prejudiced back then. However, it couldn't be denied that the images themselves were the turning point. This was the moment that black beauty was included as part of mainstream fashion. Unfortunately, as with many turning points in history, there's always going to be a backlash because there will always be people that do not want things to change. They're scared of change. They're threatened by it. And what happened with this issue of Harper's was in several southern states, the feature caused the advertisers to pull their cash immediately and readers across the country started cancelling their subscriptions to Harper's. As you can imagine, the publishers Hearst were really upset in this downturn in profits. And instead of standing by Daniela and the stunning images, they just refused to print any more images of her. Either way, whether the publishers liked it or not, the fact that Daniela was on her way to becoming well-known would only be bolstered by the rise in the civil rights movement. In 1964, President Lyndon B. Johnson passed the Civil Rights Act, a sweeping move that would enforce desegregation and prohibit discrimination of all kinds from race and colour to religion and national origin. For the first time, American businesses were prompted to hire African Americans. This is after decades of only having to think of themselves. White Americans finally had to start considering a country where black lives actually mattered. Even those who might have considered themselves liberal, you know, allies from back in the 60s, they weren't really doing much before the Civil Rights Act came in. Finally, it was time for those allies to start doing something with their positions. And it meant that the fashion world itself finally began to start working with black models. As Ben Aragondade puts it in his book, 
Luna's success beautifully timed rode on the gains and the blood of the movement. And that's where we come up against some of the less positive sides to Donyala's personality, because while she absolutely, as Ben said, would have benefited from the civil rights movement, she wasn't in any rush to show support for the movement herself. Earlier on, I hinted at the theme of fantasy in Donyala's life and how her world wasn't really founded in reality. And I think it's this quality that definitely gained her criticism from the black community when it came to her not showing any support for the movement. One 1968 New York Times article entitled Luna, Who Dreamed of Being Snow White, called her, quote, secretive, mysterious, contradictory, evasive, mercurial, and insistent upon her multiracial lineage. Exotic, chameleon strands of Mexican, American Indian, Chinese Irish, and last but least inescapable, Negro. That article showed how Doniella very publicly preferred to downplay her role as a trailblazer, as a black woman in the industry. She was not here to be that role model. And in the article, she's quoted as saying, if it brings about more jobs for Mexicans, Chinese, Indians, Negroes, groovy, it could be good. It could be bad. I couldn't care less. So, yeah, Doniella was not perfect. (laughs) There's definitely some issues there and... If she was with us today, it would be amazing to find out how her views had changed or if she would acknowledge how she could have done so much more for civil rights. Along with her rise, there also came work-related issues and relationship problems. Doniella began to argue with her manager, the photographer Richard Avedon, and she said that she found him becoming quite controlling as her career took off. To get away from the negativity, the racism, and perhaps loneliness, she lost her father early on in her career. Her mother actually shot him dead in self-defense. And in that move to New York, she obviously just left so much behind. So she decided to move to London in 1965. And that kind of really started her most popular period when it came to her career. Europe was just a completely different vibe. She felt so much more welcomed and she felt loved. She became the most booked model at the Paris collections that season and soon she was modelling couture for British and French Vogue and in a special edition of Paris Match, 11 photographers were invited to capture their own visions of Daniela. I think Europe for her was a time of just unfurling a little and relaxing and also being even more of who she was, that eccentric character. Perhaps it allowed her to forget where she came from as well and really just dive into that character. She didn't even go back for her father's funeral when she found out he was dead. So I do think there was, again, I mentioned earlier, this word desire, a desire to escape and be somebody else completely. Of her time in Europe, Doniola was quoted as saying, back in Detroit, I wasn't considered beautiful or anything, but here I'm different. I actually managed to get a copy of a 1975 issue of Playboy magazine that features a shoot with Doniola. Playboy isn't something I usually buy. The articles in there were really interesting. And actually, as a photographer, I couldn't believe how many camera ads were in there until I clicked, oh, it's a bunch of men buying this magazine and they're probably all amateur (laughs) photographers. 
But the shoot that Doniella did for Playboy was actually shot by her husband, Luigi Casaniga. And she's quite vocal when it comes to her distaste for America. She says, I like class, I like taste, I like style, and most of all, I love respect, and there's very little respect in America. I would not disagree with what she said there, and she could have even added there's very little respect in America for the black woman, because that was definitely where she was coming from. Doniella thought Europe to be much more adventurous, And it was also where she was able to meet that dream of being an actress come true. She would go on to appear in 13 films during her short career. And Europe absolutely did not have the same prejudiced attitudes towards her that America had. Designers such as Paco Rabanne, I mentioned earlier, they loved the shock of the new in Europe. And models like Doniella gave them exactly that. What's more... Working with Doniella was good for business. When she modelled a dress in vogue, it would sell out immediately. As her popularity grew, there was also a change in the face of modelling at large. Soon there were other new types of faces. There was Penelope Tree, who I mentioned earlier, who was known for her huge eyes. There was Verushka, the first German supermodel, often referred to as the most beautiful woman in the world back then. She had a very strong face. There was also Lauren Hutton, who was talked about at the time for having a gap between her front teeth. And the 60s was really becoming known as this era that celebrated difference. Like the more different you were, the better. Highlights of Doniella's career once she left America included a 1966 Time magazine article entitled The Lunar Year, in which she was named the hottest model in Europe. She went on to become the muse of artist Salvador Dali, who called her the reincarnation of Nefertiti. And she worked with leading fashion photographers Helmut Newton and David Bailey. And it was David Bailey who would bring her face to the masses of Europe that same year, as she would go on to become the first black woman to appear on the cover of British Vogue. Any Vogue, actually. I think here I should definitely let you know that American listeners may presume that Beverly Johnson is the first black woman to have appeared on the cover of Vogue, but she wasn't. She was actually the first black woman to appear on US Vogue. Doniala's British Vogue cover came eight years before, and it's a fact that is so often overlooked, so I'm really glad that I can share it with you here. The image of Doniala on the cover of Vogue, to me, it really says a lot. She's hiding her face. She's hiding much of her face, put it that way, apart from this one heavily lined eye that she's likely made up herself with a black coal liner. Back in those days, there wasn't a makeup artist or makeup products really for black women. And many black models would have to do their own makeup and bring along their own wigs. So she's got this really heavily lined eye And that eye is framed by her fingers, which seem to be forming a V almost, you know, for Vogue. Looking back at the image, while it's so undeniably beautiful and has no doubt influenced many photographers since then, it still shows Doniella hiding her face, as I said. And to me, her wanting to hide her face could mean she's also still trying to hide her ethnic origin, her blackness. I've mentioned before, you can't get away from the discomfort and perhaps dishonesty around Doniella and her ethnic origin. 
It's said that she was insistent on being referred to as mixed race. She wanted to be seen as exotic. Perhaps that explains her love for blonde wigs and the green contact lenses. But maybe it doesn't hint at any discomfort with her ethnic origin. We don't know. Perhaps we're reading too much into Doniella's looks, but you know, this is a beauty podcast. I'm a beauty writer. I'm always going to try and look a little bit deeper. Regardless of her thoughts on herself, that 1966 Vogue cover was evidence of slow progress, which is, of course, still progress. Beatrix Miller, then editor of British Vogue, said she chose the image for Doniella's bite and personality. And I think that's one thing that Unfortunately, we don't find much evidence of that bite, that personality. We're very much told that Doniella was just head in the clouds kind of type person. But we do know that while she wasn't the biggest supporter of the civil rights movement, it didn't mean that she didn't acknowledge or see racism or discrimination. In one interview, she said that she saw fashion designer Paco Roban being spat at by American journalists for his decision to use exclusively black models in one of his shows. At the height of her career, Doniella would be seen wearing the world's most expensive dresses and earning a day rate of up to around $100 an hour. So you can think of that as around $940 an hour today. She became a celebrity in her own right. But as with so many good things, there was a turning point. It's almost as if the more popular Doniella grew the more sadness entered her life, making her less able to deal with any demons that she might have had. Drugs, alcohol, clubbing with her celebrity friends soon became her norm. And as she began to deal with isolation, something I'm guessing she must have felt since the very first time she left Detroit, when she left New York, the loss of her father. I feel like She'd really lost a connection to home, even though she did write letters back and forth to friends. Her husband, Luigi, has also been quoted as saying that Doniella felt rejected by the black community and the white one. But moving countries wasn't enough to kind of feel she was at home anywhere. She went from being someone who would actually lecture her friends about the dangers of drugs to using LSD regularly and becoming addicted to heroin. If we look back through history, I feel like drug abuse, it's a constant thing that seems to come along with fame, especially for creative types. If you think of musicians and artists, there's often these short lives that are ended by drug abuse or perhaps alcohol abuse. It's as if many of these creatives are searching for things to either distract them or to perhaps enhance their creativity. You know, drugs have long been known to, especially drugs like LSD. I think they've been very well known for really spiking the imagination. But obviously, there's the danger of addiction. Another area of her life that kept Doniella on edge was where her relationships with men were concerned. It's important to remember here that she was just a teenager when she arrived in New York from Detroit. And for all her weird, strange delusions and imaginings of a glamorous life, It doesn't mean that she never felt lonely or inexperienced and naive. And that meant she was likely susceptible to being taken advantage of. Those otherworldly looks would gain her attention everywhere she went, often from much older men. In a letter to one of her friends from home, Karen Miller, 
dated December 1964, she wrote about men problems. And she'd only been in New York for a couple of months at that point. She got married in 1965 to a New York actor, but that ended within a year. She got engaged again in 1966 to a Danish photographer. That ended quickly too. Obviously, I've mentioned she did end up marrying Luigi Katzaniga, but it's clear that her relationship experience was kind of fast and furious. And to me, it hints that she may have been just searching for someone to take care of her. With her career stuttering and life dealing her these anxiety-inducing blows, she at one point had a nervous breakdown and went into hospital. Drugs had become a way for Doniola to enhance her fantasy world, but they also meant that it would be hard for her to separate the real from the imagined. Her drug-taking became excessive, and soon she wasn't turning up for her bookings. In his book, Ben compares Doniola to Gia Karanji, a supermodel who burned equally bright from the late 70s and died of AIDS in 1986. And I've been watching some stuff on Gia since doing this Doniella episode, and there are so many tragic similarities in these women's lives. They both seemed like they were searching for love. As Pat Cleveland, another top model of the 60s, put it, Doniella would never come out of that other world. She is one of those beauties that got trapped in the world of pleasure and passed away. On the 17th of May, 1979, Doniella died of an accidental heroin overdose at a friend's house while separated from her husband, Luigi. She was 33 and she left behind an 18-month-old daughter, Dream. I don't like to use the word story when I talk about Doniella in this podcast I really wanted it to be about her life and how she truly impacted the fashion industry and black culture and how that impact is still felt today. Recently, I was glad to be reminded of that. I was watching episode one of the Supreme series. It's called How Black Models Broke Through the Glass Ceiling, episode one. And the Supreme series is something that's been created by Vogue with YouTube On the show, there's lots of celebrities, lots of model appearances, but somebody I recognized early on was photographer Mark Baptiste. He's known for lots of celebrity portraits and he's done like very well-known album covers for the likes of Erica Badu and Brandy. And early on in episode one, he says, Danina Luna was one of the top black models that ever, ever appeared in a magazine cover in the world. She will deal part of this legacy of opening the door for other black and brown models, from Naomi Campbell to Tara Banks. I couldn't name them all. (laughs) While I was happy to see that Doniella was discussed in this series, it just didn't feel like quite enough for me. Obviously, the series is about models, black models and their impact. So I know it's not all about Doniella, but I do think she deserved her own episode. (laughs) However... Since then, I found that we can expect a documentary about Doniella that will hopefully bring her to life for just other young black and brown women who may still feel today like they are not seen. I read that New Orleans-based documentary filmmaker Nyla Jefferson is working on a HBO documentary. And even though it's a documentary, I couldn't help wondering who I would want to play Doniella. 
Definitely going to make a TikTok on this as well. For me, the obvious choice is Euphoria actress Zendaya because she did a tribute shoot for Essence magazine in 2020. But for a little bit of humor, which I think Doniella must have had to have a sense of humor to get by in New York and the UK, I would like to see someone like Zazie Beats of Atlanta or Taylor Page of Zola. I think they're both very layered actresses that can do drama and comedy. And I, I think they could both do a really good job of bringing Doniella to life. But it's only a documentary as far as I know. Either way, I'll definitely be sure to share a review when the film comes out. To bring this episode to a close, I didn't want to stay with any sadness. I actually wanted to read a letter that Doniella sent to her friend, Marianne, while she was falling in love with New York in those first couple of months. She wrote, New York is a dream. A man danced me down Fifth Avenue and all up and down Broadway, men were eyeing and whistling at me and so many other unbelievable things. I'm really getting the works from head to toe by Harper's Bazaar's best. As soon as possible, I'll send you a picture of the new me. I'll be on top of the world if it takes every breath I have every muscle of my skinny body. I feel it. I know it. I'll be some kind of star real soon, real soon. Once again, I have to acknowledge the source of so much of this information in this episode. Ben Aragondade's Beauty's Enigma, the story of Daniela Luna, the first black supermodel. It took me a while to get a copy And I actually went as far as to contact Ben. His assistant responded to me saying the book no longer existed, which I thought was a bit weird because it's an e-book and, you know, nothing goes away when it's on the internet. So we did some digging. Well, my husband did. And we managed to buy a copy for £2. So I'll definitely share the link with you in the show notes if you want to try and buy it too. Hopefully you'll tell that I really wanted to create this episode for a while and hopefully it tells you a concise, organized version or interpretation of Doniella Luna's life events. I would love to know what you think. Had you heard of Doniella before? Let me know. Do you like these historical lookbacks at beauty? Get in touch over at Beauty Me Podcast on Instagram or Twitter and definitely look out for my Doniella themed TikToks. There's a few coming, okay? You can find them on TikTok at Sharice Kenyon. I'll also be saving, as I said, a whole Doniella highlight on my Instagram story so you can really feast your eyes on just her stunning looks and the stunning outfits that she was pictured in. And there's also the newsletter. There's a full focus on Doniella in there too, beautymenotes.substat.com. Don't forget to follow and subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And please, if you enjoyed this episode, do leave me a review. See you next time.